So as part of our tradition, we come together on the oppositor to meditate and chant, listen to the Dhamma, and to listen to the recitation of the Patimokha. It's an important part of our practice to listen to the Dhamma or read Dhamma, to remind ourselves of the path of practice and the truth that the Buddha was pointing to. Because we were all coming from a place of avicca, conditioned by not knowing the truth, not understanding or seeing the truth. It's helpful to hear the Dhamma, the Dhamma that was well expounded by the Buddha to help break through some of our delusions or at least point, to, point us in the direction towards truth. So which are, or delusion is always, keeps returning to our mind, keeps affecting us, influencing us in the way we think, in the way we fall under the sway of craving and attachment. Someone once asked Lumpur Cha, how do we know delusion? He said, you're like somebody riding a horse, asking where the horse is. It's there all the time. And this way of training we have is because Samanera's Anagarikas is giving us some tools and skills to deal with that, to bring up the opposite of avicca, to bring up vicca, knowledge, through cultivating the path. The path is sila samadhi panya, as we hear so often. One way the Buddha referred to it is the path of abandoning dujarita, uh, cultivating sujarita. Dujarita means unwholesome or evil ways of action, bodily action, speech, and mental action. Sujarita means wholesome, skillful ways of body, speech and mind. So in our monastic training, we have things that we cultivate and things that we are refraining from, abandoning all the time. So we abandon the habit or the tendency towards gaya ducerita. We refrain from killing, but cultivate 
kindness, compassion, harmlessness. We refrain from stealing and cultivate respect for the property of others. We refrain from sexual misconduct and in our practice it means we just practice celibacy but also respect obviously for others We abandon waji to jerita, so un unskillful speech centered around lying or speech that promotes anger, ill will, disharmony between people. We abandon coarse speech and abandon speech that is useless or nonsensical pointless that leads to a loss of mindfulness and we cultivate the opposite we cultivate truthfulness in our speech gentleness kindness speech that promotes harmony speech that is promoting mindfulness promoting dhamma it's to the point useful And even internally, we're practicing abandoning mano dujerita, unskillful mental states based around lopa, or greed, particularly greed or covetousness for the things that belong to others. Dosa, ill will, aversion, hatred, and abandoning moha and delusion and particularly wrong views of michaditi and cultivating alopa and non-greed so contentment very much at the heart of the monastic lifestyle contentment content with little content with what comes our way adosa again harmlessness mental states to be centered around kindness, compassion, abhayabhada, and non-ill will, and amoha, developing right view, and wise reflection based on right view and cultivating right view, using our mind to reflect on the Dhamma, listen to it, reflect on it until we straighten our views so that they become in line with the Dhamma. And this is the heart of Buddhist practice, abandoning all the forms of Dujirita, developing all the forms of Sujirita. So we're ones in training. This is what we do when people ask us, we're Buddhist monks or novices, anagarikas, what do we do? Well, we're in training. And even though on the outside it might look like we don't do very much, it's actually, as we know, a very refined training. As you extend the abandoning of dujirita and the cultivation of sujirita outwards, 
well then you get the whole Vinaya, the Patimokha and all the rules beyond. So every day we have training rules and practices to cultivate, to train with for the very purpose of abandoning Dukkha and cultivating Sutta We have the five, eight precepts, ten precepts. Even as a novice we take on the 75 Sekhya rules. They give us guidelines how to wear our robes, look after our robes, wear our robes mindfully, properly. It requires us to pay attention as we put on our robes, to be mindful the way we look after them. We don't neglect them, keep them clean, patch them when they're damaged, learn to fold them, look after them, keep them properly. Learn how to eat mindfully. How to even how to speak, speak the Dhamma mindfully and properly. Extending on from that, many of the Sakya rules or the Dukkata rules in the Vinaya. The rules how we carry ourselves, how we walk around, move around, not to move in haste, or to run, or to throw our arms around wildly. These are all part and parcel of training as a monastic, Buddhist monastic. Training how to receive offerings in the proper way. So we learn to receive in our hands, don't eat medicines or food that haven't been placed into our hands or onto a cloth for a woman. These define the behavior of a monk. It's also training the laity. It makes them mindful of how to offer. We're mindful of how we receive. Something Lumpo Cha emphasized over and over again, because it's something that comes up every day. Every day we eat food, use medicines, receive requisites, use requisites, and they all come from the laity. So the way that's carried out is a very important area where we develop mindfulness and learn to do things appropriately. Sometimes when monks lost their mindfulness, mealtime, pots of food put down, somebody a little bit too fast picks it up before it's been offered. Lumpur Cha saw that. Sometimes he would just quickly tell them to send it back to the kitchen. So nobody ate from that pot of food that day. Sometimes monks get caught into their normal way of thinking, reacting, say, oh, it's only a mistake. I won't have any, let the others have it. Start saying something or arguing. just cut straight, straight through it as a lesson, just a, a kind of an electric shock of mindfulness. Just say, oh, send it back to the kitchen. Nobody needs to eat it. 
just as a way of making people mindful about these very small but important things. Or sometimes monks would make him a fruit juice, put a lot of effort into it, take it to him, and then he'd say, no, I won't take it, there's too much solid material in the juice, if they hadn't filtered it enough. You could be very particular in these kind of things, just to teach, to remind people what the Vinaya training is all about. It's about mindfulness and developing skillful states of mind, not based on greed, anger, delusion. We train ourselves in right speech, abandoning dujarita, waji dujarita, cultivating waji sujarita. It takes a lot of effort sometimes, we have to use all our mindfulness to restrain habits of when we're anger, angry to swear or complain or criticize others. takes effort to cultivate habits, skillful habits of mindful, useful speech, purposeful speech, speech that is helpful and conducive to harmony based in metta. <coughs> these are skills, these are part of our training on a daily basis. So training means we have to keep reviewing actions, reviewing our actions reviewing our speech and following up on the trails of the mental states underlying our actions, our speech and noting what is mano dujarita, mano sujarita and often in the beginning it's very frustrating because we're catching ourselves after the event so at the very least we often feel like we, may, we have a personal failing. Sometimes we're even embarrassed because maybe other people see our failing. But at the same time we can understand everybody is in the same position. We're all under training. The only person not under training, the Asaka Pugala, is the, the Arahants and the Buddhas. So it's not something to be to dwell on in a way, say, to be very embarrassed about. Although sometimes we perhaps should be embarrassed if we do things wrong or inappropriate. Or not something we should necessarily seek to always hide from others, but just accept. Sometimes we lose our mindfulness. But then to use resolution, determination to learn and to improve. The basis of our practice is about changing our mind, the way it's conditioned, by abandoning dujarita, cultivating sujarita. And although a lot of the Vinaya is meticulous, so it is easy to notice mistakes, especially in the beginning, minor rules, minor infringements. 
we shouldn't get too um, disheartened, but just see this is all useful, a useful, skillful way for training body, speech and mind. It's an ongoing training. And it actually, in some ways, makes it easy because we can keep referring to what is the correct way to do things, the correct speech, correct action in different situations. But it's something we have to do through arousing effort, arousing good intention, putting it into practice. <coughs> we can't just do it through willpower, forcing ourselves to be a certain way has to come through developing the mindfulness and then reviewing and learning, investigating more deeply our behavior. So we listen to the Dhamma, we listen to the Vinaya, we reflect on it and gradually learn it and all by itself it seems it will condition us in a good way. Perhaps over after a few years you notice how things that previously were difficult and took a lot of effort become more natural, more normal for us. We just naturally drop old habits, speech habits, actions. And we become, become more mindful and accustomed to the way of a bhikkhu. Not only that, but it even becomes a basis for reflecting on our sila, our vinaya, having lived as a bhikkhu or a novice or an anagarika for a while, we can reflect back on the training that we have done and it can be a great source of joy. Not that we're trying to see ourselves as perfect, but just reflect on the wholesome effort we've put into training ourselves, doing something that's very challenging, it requires a lot of effort a lot of commitment. It's one one of the recollections, the ten recollections, sila nusati. And as bhikkhus, the Buddha encouraged us to learn skillful ways to arouse joy in the practice. Some of the more nourishing, nourishing positive states of mind that help us through periods of when we're having trouble or difficulty in our practice, when we're feeling down or ill, or tired, or have encountered different problems, one of the skills we have to develop is how to arouse some joy, some feelings of contentment and satisfaction with what we're doing. And this can be a cause even for samadhi to arise, states of peace and calm in our meditation. So just reflecting on the sila that we've kept, sila nusati, the effort we've put into training, reflect, reflecting on the wholesome states that we brought up, and reflecting on the unwholesome states that we've abandoned, that we haven't followed. So even if sometimes we find our mind is very confused or angry or full of greed, the fact that we may not be acting on it or speaking on it is already a very positive thing because it means we've established sila. We know the difference between having an unskillful thought arise in the mind but also not acting on it. 
we've already developed enough mindfulness, enough restraint that we don't have to act on every unwholesome intention. That's a very special thing. It's the very heart of the practice. Reflecting on that is even one form of arousing joy, happiness in the training, in the practice. One form of meditation, sila nusati. <clears throat> and this way of encouraging more positive states of mind is, as I said, it's, it's a skill the Buddha encouraged us to develop, to actually put it attention on this, how to motivate ourselves, how to bring up some enjoyment in the practice. Because it's very much like a, seems like a mental war or constant battle sometimes with avichar because it's constantly there in the background. The mind is constantly slipping back to worldly states based on greed, anger, delusion. So we also have to learn how to find some contentment, satisfaction in the practice that we're doing. You might say, take some happiness from small victories. So just keeping to the Vinaya is a, a daily victory for us that we can reflect on. We can also reflect on some of the wholesome aspects of our life, so having come into contact with Buddha Dhamma Sangha. This is why we chanting suttas, reflections, is something that we tend to do in the monastic training and the monastic life because it's constantly reminding us of our teacher, the Buddha, who he was, the qualities of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the qualities of the Dhamma, the protective power of the Dhamma, the Sangha, those who just like ourselves have practiced and become enlightened following in, in the footsteps of the Buddha. You know, regularly we chant reflections in praise of Buddha Dhamma Sangha. And although it can become a bit habitual or perfunctory, if we stop to really remind ourselves why we're doing it and of the meaning of the chants that we do, even that much can be a source of great joy. It can give us something positive, even if mentally our mind is not yet very peaceful, it's full of agitation from different mental defilements. Doing some chanting, either reflecting on teachings or just chanting in praise of Buddha Dhamma Sangha, so on, can bring up a sense of calm, peace, contentment. Almost every line has some good meaning. You chant, even say the evening chanting, we chant over and over again. Like chant, you know, something like we say, the Buddha is sorrow's destroyer. He bestows blessings on me. You take one line and reflect on it as you chant or after you've chanted. You know, the fact that we've come in contact with the Buddhist teachings, the Buddhist path, we've had the opportunity to become monks. It's a very rare thing and it's given us a chance to develop insight into into the way to liberate the mind from sorrow. 
if the Buddha's done that, the Dhamma is sorrow's destroyer because it's that the vehicle, the truth which we use to liberate the mind. The Sangha is sorrow's destroyer and those who have already practiced, proven that it, it works, they've also destroyed all the sorrow in their minds. Bestows blessings on me, Buddha Dhamma Sangha. In the fact that we've come into contact with Buddha Dhamma Sangha, we're living this life, we're a constant blessing to ourselves and the longer we do it, we become a blessing to others as well. This isn't to become puffed up or arrogant about what we're doing, but it's just to mindfully reflect on what we're doing. And in a balanced way, you see, well, even though there's still more to do and many battles to fight with our own mind, many victories to be found in the future, we've already achieved this much. We've come this much in our practice. And if nothing else happens, in our life, or if we were to die tomorrow, say, well, we've still come in contact with Buddha Dhamma Sangha and that blessing. There's obviously 108 or many more ways to reflect on these simple verses that we might recite or chant. But the point is you use it skillfully, you're directing your mind to skillfully reflect on Buddha Dhamma Sangha as a way to arouse both rapture, joy, remind ourselves of certain things so we gain knowledge. And it has a calming and energizing effect on the mind, a brightening effect. And this is why we interchange periods of meditation with periods of chanting. You might meditate for a while and then find you're becoming very tired or restless in mind, so a period of chanting can revitalize your meditation, put you back on track, put you, focuses the mind back on the teachings, brightens the mind, can certainly help to cut through sleepiness if you're practicing late at night, early in the morning, can help to cut through distracted states of mind which constantly bother us. And the deepest kind of suffering and mental states or mano tujarita that affect us, and chanting can cut through that. And the Buddha said, if you're out in the forest you're, you're afraid, well, recollect the qualities of the Buddha, which might mean chanting itipiso bhagawa or reflecting word by word on the meaning. Can straight away give you confidence when you may be afraid. Or if you're in a situation where you're uncertain what to do or seem to be overcome, overwhelmed by strong defilements, chanting can hold your mind in the present moment. It can cut through lust, when you're caught up in lust, cut through anger, cut through fear, worry, anxiety, all of the kind of more extreme states of suffering that we have. Reflecting on chaka, chakanusati, also can be a very useful exercise 
especially in periods where our mindfulness or our meditation is suffering dullness, which is a common experience for everyone. You can ref change your your mood in a skillful way, returning to reflect on dana and service and renunciation. We've all practiced a great renunciation by giving up our use of money and earning wealth in the world, living in poverty, simplicity. We've renounced the, the, the home life or the homeless life. We've all done acts of dana before we were ordained or as we were ordained. Maybe as an ordained person your acts of dana might be very minor because you don't have much to give, but perhaps that means they're all the more valuable. You know, when you share some food or a gift with somebody else, maybe you have very little, but because you have little, your attachment is very strong to those small things. So when you give away something or do an act of service for somebody, it can be a great act of dana. Well, the more we practice, the more we understand about the practice, we can give Dhamma Dhana. We can teach or give advice to people, just words of encouragement to learn to meditate or do more meditation, to keep precepts, to be patient with life's difficulties. You know, anyone can give those kinds of words of encouragement. That's Dhamma Dhana. Giving forgiveness, you know, forgiveness to your fellow monastics if somebody's annoyed you or unknowingly or knowingly hurt you in some way. Give forgiveness. And these are all forms of dana we can reflect back on, the forgiveness we've given in our lives, the, the advice, the teaching or the help we've given others, the material things we've given. And you reflect back like this and it brightens the mind. So again, it's a form of anusati, recollection. It can bring up a sense of joy, contentment, satisfaction with the holy life. These are just a few examples. You're reflecting on, on the path, on the Buddha Sangha, on the Sila, the Vinaya, reflecting on the good actions that we've done so far in our lives it can be a useful way to prepare the mind for more refined meditation objects like the breath or the asupagamatana, some of the meditations which are more difficult, which require more attention, more mindfulness and are not always easy to settle into. You know, when you're practicing for many hours a day, it's Often we need to use more reflective meditation just to calm the mind, settle the mind. So the ten recollections are useful like that. Sometimes we can even take worldly knowledge and use it as a form of meditation. As we know, Ajahn Chah, when he was a young monk, did a meditation on how to sew a sangati because he didn't have a teacher. So he sat in his meditation visualizing it. He could sew and he knew how, a, how to sew a jiwara, but he didn't have a teacher to sew the two-layered sangati robe. So he visualized it mentally going through the 
process of cutting it, sewing it, where to turn it, go to the corners, turn it inside out, back to front. Working it all out in his mind so that then he could go off and sew a Sangati. Or Lumpur Liam, when he was here recently. I remember when I was a young monk, asking him how he did the construction on the roof of the sala at Wobbapong because I couldn't see any plans. He said the plans were in his head. Just sits down, thinks it through, the size of the beams and the different supporting structures. And it's been there for many years, hasn't fallen down, so he probably did a good job. As monks, we learn to use our mind like this and it's a form of meditation. Assessing problems, sometimes it's just our own personal problems, how to deal with defilements, and we have to learn to be creative sometimes. Sometimes it's more to do with things that are for the community as a whole, service for others, teaching others, building projects, administration, just could be something very simple like how to sort out some mess somewhere, some, something needs tidying up. How do you do it? We think about it first and make some kind of a plan in your mind. There's many areas we can direct our mind, but you can do it as a form of meditation. Either sitting or walking, you direct your mind to some task or use some knowledge and bring it up. And you don't let your mind stray from that task or that knowledge while you're contemplating. Just as if you're turning to the breath or any other meditation object. But now you're using memory and you're using thought, things that we have anyway, but directing it in a very wholesome way. So it becomes a form of sujarita. Verbally, in your mind, you're not thinking anything based in greed, anger and delusion, or if those mental states arise, you let them go and keep turning to the very theme that you are developing. It could be a theme of Dhamma, understanding an aspect of Dhamma, or it could be a more worldly thing, but just used as a meditation reflection. It could be thinking through a certain project or task, and that will take up a certain period of time, maybe, 20 minutes thinking it through, not letting your mind stray anywhere else, just contemplating back and forth. Sometimes visually, just sometimes just stringing thoughts and concepts together. And when the mind strays from that subject, that topic, you bring it back. Even though mentally it's using up energy, so you might feel tired, it's also cal- it also tends to be calming the mind. And sometimes you do this, and then you turn to a more normal meditation object like the breath, and straight away the mind settles down to the breath. Even though physically or mentally you might be a little bit tired, but the mind has used up a lot of wholesome energy, it's brought up very wholesome mind states. So then to turn to a more refined object is quite practical and you might find you're more successful in your meditation sometimes when you prepare the mind in this way.
So not only do we have to learn how, learn the skill of how to arise, arouse confidence, some joy, happiness in the practice, but also as a preparation for meditation itself. <clears throat> Obviously meditating like this, using thought directed to a theme, there's movement of the mind. So at the most it will bring you to upajara samadhi, but that's quite suitable for further contemplation. You maybe you, you contemplate a certain task for a while, you know, how to sew a rope, or learning a chant, or how to do some building or some ac activity in the monastery. You bring it to the point where your mind is settled and calm, well it could even enter upajara samadhi, and the hindrances have all gone at that time. Then you might refine it down to just mindfulness of the breath, or one word, a meditation word like Bhutto. Or you might even contemplate further, having contemplated that theme, and then you take it one step further and well, you'd sew that robe, you also reflect on the impermanence in that robe. Eventually you sew it, eventually it will wear out. It's still made up of the four elements. Or the bhikkhu who's going to wear that robe that you're planning to sew in your mind will eventually get old and die. So you reflect onwards as a form of vipassana. Again, wisely reflecting, using your mind just turning from the details of that task or that reflection to a practice of vipassana, just contemplating impermanence or not-self. Ultimately that robe you are planning to sew is completely free from any form of self or enduring self, so it's empty. You could actually bring your mind to be contemplating emptiness or experiencing emptiness by seeing the three characteristics applied to a reflection you've been having in your mind. Or you're building something in your mind and then eventually you bring it to the point where you see it. one day it will fall apart, break down or be pulled down and your mind goes to emptiness. There's no sense of ownership or identification with the, the concept, the thought, the plan, even though you've been doing it, now the mind just goes to quietness, emptiness. So there's a sense of detachment or dispassion towards the very object you've been contemplating. It's just the way, same way we reflect on our body or our mental states or our feelings, any aspect of the candles we can reflect in this way. But to get the mind to the point where it can reflect well and continuously, for at least for a period of time, we have to learn to calm the mind and focus it, one point it. So sometimes we use wise reflections, anusati, recollections, either the, the traditional ones or a more, in a more creative way, as I've just explained. When the mind settles down, then we just bring it to one-pointedness. May we reflect very 
closely on our meditation object and not let the mind become distracted so no hindrances can come up. So we actually maintain samadhi and then just reflect on the three characteristics. As we see from the time of the Buddha, some of the bhikkhus practiced in unconventional ways. And they didn't, you don't read about them going to and doing a vipassana course or sitting down and doing samatha and then doing vipassana in the more modern way that we've now become accustomed to, the sort of technical descriptions about meditation techniques and so on. Maybe they were just sent off and say, you go and chop wood. By chopping wood, contemplating the movement of the body, the movement of the axe, the changing nature of the wood that they're being, that's being chopped, reflecting back on the five candles, then a bhikkhu becomes enlightened. This is perhaps why Lumpur Cha said, you know, really in practice you can't separate samatha or vipassana or sati, Samadhi and Panya, they're all cultivated together because it's the same mind. But on paper, we do separate them out just to give us some intellectual background and understanding of the path we're following. But in practice, you can't always separate them. One thing leads into another. And often after many days, weeks, months, even years of practice, you know, results can come up very quickly when they come. And they talk about very brief flashes of insight that have a very powerful effect on the mind. You know, removing delusion, removing the tendency towards delusion. But it's not like it just happens just like that. It's actually the result of many days, weeks, months, years of practice. So all the effort we put into, even though it sometimes seems fruitless, it's not. It's an, it has an accumulative effect on the mind, on every level. You're training in abandoning gaya dujjarita, giving up more unskillful ways of behavior, body, waji dujjarita, speech, Manodujarita, giving these up. Little by little, the mind is being trained, developing towards something better, something that's more peaceful, and the clarity, clarity of having right view, and being able to use the mind to look at things and observe the truth, rather than just always reacting to it. Not even just remembering truth, but actually seeing it, knowing it the way it is. This has a liberating effect on the mind. It gives it a great sense of peace. And peace for, for us means, you know, it means dispassion, which is not a very fashionable word because nowadays you're supposed to be passionate about everything. It's considered a very positive personality trait. But the result of this practice is actually dispassion. 
you know, where we feel calm and cool towards the world because we know it's an each dukkha anatta. We feel calm and cool towards even our own mental reactions, feelings, thoughts, because they're seen as impermanent and not self. This is a whole way of training that we're developing and everything counts. Even the little things can count. Even small things can be part of the training, even if we overlook them sometimes. But we shouldn't underestimate small things. Small things can have a cumulative effect. Right behavior with body, right behavior with speech, feeds on to right mental behavior, developing right view, right understanding. So everything is important. Everything can be part of the practice. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight.